Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is what can be identified as the, the um, definition of faith. We know that faith is important. The Bible says, uh, actually, in my opinion, there's no more important subject in all of the Bible than faith. Because it says that you can't be saved without faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. Well, we, always want, we all want to please God, don't we? Well, it's going to take faith to do that. And so faith is one of the key issues... In every part of our Christian life, we see throughout the four Gospels that of the occurrences that are written down and uh, that we have record of in those four Gospels, there are 19 individual cases of healing. Now, it seems like there's more than that because some of the Gospel writers cover the same stories. But if you take them apart and count them, you'll find out that there's 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. And um, that doesn't include the multitudes, doesn't include larger groups and so forth, but individuals, in a couple of cases, two people that uh, experienced healing from Jesus, specifically and directly. Out of those 19, about 75% of them speak specifically of the faith of the individual, or at least it implies faith through their actions and the actions that they took. Well, if Jesus was bound by the faith of the individuals to do what he did and to perform miracles here on the earth. And I'm referring back to Mark chapter 6 as an example. It tells us about when Jesus was in his own hometown of Nazareth. He stood up in the synagogue for to read. And he found the place where it was written in the prophet Isaiah. We know of it as Isaiah 61 where he told what he was sent to the earth to do. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, everybody knew those scriptures were pertaining to the Messiah. So uh, when he sat down, it says he gave the book back to the uh, priest, the ruler of the synagogue, and he sat down and everybody's eyes were fastened on him. Everybody's looking to see what he's going to do next. And that's when he said, I say unto you, this day are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. He says that he's the one that this is speaking about. Well, you would expect in his own hometown, after Jesus specifically talked about what he was anointed to do and sent from heaven for, you would have expected that there'd be a lot of results that took place in that place, in that city. But it says Jesus could there. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says Jesus could there do no mighty work. Save he laid his hands on a few sick folks, a few folks with minor ailments, according to Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words. It says, and he couldn't there do no mighty works, and he marveled at their unbelief. Now, folks, if unbelief hindered Jesus from ministering the healing power of God, the miracle-working power of God in Nazareth, how much more will unbelief hinder us who just have a measure of the Holy Ghost, where he had the Holy Ghost, the entirety of the Holy Ghost, as it says in the Scripture, without measure. So faith is one of the most important elements that there is. It's one of the most important subjects that we could ever speak about or identify. And what a lot of people don't get, and, and when I say a lot of people, I'm talking about the majority of the church world, it looks to me. Like the majority of the church world 
uses their faith to get saved, but that's it. That's the last time they use their faith. But Jesus said faith was like a servant to us. Faith would work for us. Well, if we've got something that God provided for us to work for us, we ought to know what that is, don't you think? So in Hebrews 11, verse 1, it's the Bible definition of faith. Now, faith is the evidence. uh, Well, let me get back to it. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I want to read this to you from Weiss translation. It says, now faith is the title deed of things hoped for. It's the proof of things which are not being seen. I want to talk to you a minute or two about this, uh, this phrase. Faith is the title deed to things hoped for. Think about what that means. Now, if you've got a deed to a house or a deed to property, any property whatsoever, you don't even have to ever see the property. You don't even have to see what the the title deed is for, for it to belong to you. It belongs to you because you have the deed to it. It doesn't matter how much you use it. doesn't matter if you ever use it. But faith is the title deed to the things that we hope for. Now, this is healing school, so we'll keep our remarks uh, focused or uh, pointed toward the subject of healing. The Bible says faith is your title deed to healing. You have a title deed to healing. Now, one thing that's, uh, that's interesting about this for me is because it doesn't say the Word of God is your title deed. Now, that would seem to make more sense, wouldn't it? If the Word of God is our title deed to whatever belongs to us, in this case, healing, the only way we would know about healing belonging to us, the only way we would be able to identify in any way whatsoever what belongs to us is through the Word. Well, then why does the Bible say that faith is the title deed? Or why did Weiss translation say that faith was the title deed and not just the Word of God? Because if the Word of God is going to be effective, it's going to have to be planted in the heart of the hearer. If the Word of God is going to bring about any results, and without question, the only reason that we know that healing belongs to us is because the Word tells us. The only way that we know any and all of the things that belong to us as children of God is because what the Word informs us. But it's not the information that brings the results. It's the information planted and received and planted in your heart. Watered and cultivated. That springs up into results. You've got to plant the word of God in your heart. How do you do that? Well, God told Joshua that the key to success for him, and God's no respecter of persons, that means whatever is the key to success for Joshua has got to be the key to, the key to success for us too. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, This book of the law, talking about the word of God, the law of Moses is all they had. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. So the word of God is supposed to be in our mouths. He said, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. So meditating in the word has something to do with our speech. We can't meditate in the word unless we're saying it. And God's instruction to Joshua is never stop saying it. The only way that you can keep the word of God from departing from your mouth is to say it again and again and again. Because if you just say it once, it's spoken, but then it's departed from your mouth. So if we're going to not let it depart from our mouths in, uh, in agreement or obedience to what God told Joshua, that means we're going to have to keep saying it. Well, how often do we have to say it? 
He said, say it or meditate in it day and night. Now, the rest of your time is yours, but day and night belongs to meditating in the Word. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. Speak it, say it, mutter it. Thou shalt meditate therein, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written. For then, after you meditate in the word and speak it continuously, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. Here's the Old Testament instruction to the people of God. My son, attend to my words. Means put them first place. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. That means listen to what the word says above anything else you hear. Let them not depart from thine eyes. See yourself with what the Bible says belongs to you. And keep them in the midst of thine heart. The heart is talking about the spirit here. He's talking about maintaining your position of belief in the word of God. Here's why. Verse 22. For they, my words, are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Health to all their flesh. That means the word of God, the information transmitted to us through the word of God, as we meditate on it and put it first place in our lives, as we hear what it has to say to us, regardless of whatever else is speaking to us, regardless of what natural circumstances or situations are, if we'll keep those things in the midst of our heart, speak the word of God from our spirits. Remember, that's what Jesus said about faith in Mark eleven twenty three. 23. He said, whosoever shall say, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, shall not doubt in his spirit, in other words, but believe in his heart. That those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. The emphasis that Jesus put on faith was without question leaning toward the confession side rather than the believing side. See, folks, the more you confess the word of God, the more you believe it. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, according to Romans 10, 17. You don't listen to anybody more than you listen to you. We're talking to ourselves all day long, don't we? We're considering things. We talk to ourselves. Sometimes we talk to ourselves out loud in the car or somewhere and we notice that people are looking at us. So then we look over and act like we're talking to a baby or whatever. Because we are constantly talking to ourselves. You believe you more than you believe anybody. So as you speak the word of God, as you claim the promises of God and speak those with your mouth, lift your voice to... to, uh, Uh, pronounce and proclaim those things that the Bible informs us of, those things that belong to us in Christ Jesus. The Bible says and teaches us that that's how you plant the Word of God in your heart. That's how you water the Word of God in your heart. That's how it takes root on the inside of you, your innermost being, the real you, the spirit of man. And that's how things come to pass. That winds up being what you really believe. What you believe is what you say over and over and over and over and over. Now, granted, when we first find the truth of the word, we don't believe it in our hearts. We have to make the choice to believe it in our hearts. It's not automatically there apart from the knowledge of the word. So what do we do? We make the choice to say what God's word says. That determines who we are and what we have. It determines whether or not we're going to take hold of what the Bible says belongs to us. 
Faith is always identified by what we say. Faith is always identified by what we say. So when the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, as we said, faith is the title deed of the things that we hope for. What you own is what you speak. What you own is what you speak. You can always tell where somebody is in faith by what they say. And what we own is what we speak. Now, Paul talks about to the Romans in chapter 9, not the Romans, the book of Hebrews again. In chapter 9, Paul talks about the New Testament being a will, being like a will. He talks about how that a will is of no force. It has no power as long as the person that the will concerns is alive. He says, and of course we know this is true from the culture that we live in. He says that the will only comes into effect. It only takes force or has any power to be followed or to be exercised or be executed at the death of the individual. And of course the individual he's talking about is Jesus. He's saying that what we know of is the New Testament. It's the very same thing as the last will and testament of Jesus. And it took effect just as soon as, as he died. When he died and paid the price for sin, sickness, disease, and poverty. That will came into force in our lives. Now let's use a natural example to see if we can understand this better too. If you are the beneficiary of a rich man's will, you become wealthy at the death of the rich man. You become a wealthy individual even before you find out the person died. You don't become wealthy when the money is transferred. You don't become wealthy when things are placed in your hands. As far as the, the law is concerned, and I'm talking about the law of man, as far as from a legal standpoint, you become wealthy as soon as the individual that the will concerned died. There are things that belong to us and will always belong to us whether we ever take advantage of them or not. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Here's one of my favorite healings, accounts of healing in Jesus' ministry. We'll start in verse 21. It says, Then Jesus went thence and departed unto the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast. Notice she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. I've made this statement many times whenever we come across something like this, but I think it always needs to be said. And that is, anytime somebody called on Jesus as the son of David, it's a recognition of the fact that he's the Messiah. Whenever somebody calls him the son of David, they're declaring that based on what they've heard or what they've seen or what they're familiar with from his ministry, he is the Messiah. And folks, like I said, in Luke chapter 4, when he was in his hometown of Nazareth, he took the scrolls and found Isaiah 61. And he told them that he was anointed to heal the sick and preach the gospel and so forth. And when he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, there's no question that he's identifying himself as the Messiah. He's identifying himself as the one sent from God to bring salvation to the world. Now, I don't know how to check this out. I've heard it said 
and I can't find any evidence to prove it, but I can't find anything that disproves it either, that the Jews in the synagogues, in Jesus' day at least, the Jews would have a special seat that was reserved for the Messiah. It was a seat that obviously nobody else sat in. But just as, or in, in the same vein, as the Jews having or maintaining a seat for Elijah during the Passover, and it's a chair that's left empty for the kids to, to ask questions, what's that empty chair for? And for the fathers and mothers to tell them about the promise of Elijah to come. We know that was fulfilled. Jesus told us that was fulfilled when John the Baptist came. He came in the spirit of Elijah. But in the same vein, I guess, the Jewish synagogues had an empty seat for the Messiah. And so when the Bible says that Jesus took the scrolls and gave them back to the ruler of the synagogue and sat down, it has been said that he sat down in that chair. There must be something about it when the Bible tells us that he sat down in the eyes of all those in the synagogue who were fastened on him. Something seems to get their attention. Now, whether it was that or not, I don't know. And it doesn't, it doesn't ruin the story for me if there was no such seat. Because Jesus clearly identifies with what he says next, that he is the Messiah. He said, these days are these scriptures fulfilled in your ears. So whether he sat in the Messiah's seat or he just through his words identifies himself as the Messiah, everybody is clear. Everybody knows exactly what's going on. They know exactly what Jesus has just claimed. Yet that was the place that Jesus could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. So here this woman, when she calls out to Jesus as the son of David, he's a, she's identifying that she's heard enough to convince her that he's the Messiah. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Remember, she believes. She's identified that she believes he's the Messiah. But he answered and said, It is not meet or right or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. This story, the reason that I like this story so well, so glad we've got an example of this or this uh, account of healing. Everything about this story is taking possession of something. The woman wants to take possession of healing or deliverance for her daughter. And Jesus tells her that it's not her possession yet. He said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What that really means is Jesus came and was sent to the Jews first. And after that, then everything that he did was made available to the Gentiles. Thank God it was, or else we wouldn't be in the family of God. So Jesus is just simply saying, identifying, and, and the Gospels tell us very specifically that Jesus only went in the first year of his ministry, he only went to the place, places of the Jews, the cities of the Jews. After the Jews began to take issue with him and began to plot to, to uh, take his life, then he would get over into some of the Gentile towns, limitedly, of course. But God wasn't trying to hide anything from anybody. He was supposed to go to the Jews first and the Gentiles afterwards. So this is all about possession. 
This account is all about possession. She wants something that she doesn't yet possess, according to the plan of God. Not because God was going to withhold it, but because he hadn't finished his ministry to the Jews yet. But she wouldn't have any part of that. She knew if he was the Savior, if he was the Messiah. There are Old Testament scriptures. We don't know if she knew these. But there, were old, there are Old Testament scriptures that talk about Jesus being the salvation for the world. About Jesus being the Savior for the Gentiles as much as the Jews. And again, it was all about timing. God sent Jesus to the Jews first. Now, whether she knows that, whether she has, that has any bearing on her stance or her position, I don't know. It's possible Here she's living in the coast of Canaan. She's a Gentile woman. But she's heard enough about Jesus to be convinced that he's the Messiah. Maybe she has access to some of the Jewish teaching, Jewish prophecies about the Messiah. Maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. But whatever it is about this woman, whatever it is about what she's heard, she is not going to be denied something that she wishes to possess. And so she won't be turned away. She won't give in when the disciples try to get her to be quiet. She won't give in when Jesus doesn't answer her when she comes to him. She doesn't give in when Jesus says, it's not your time yet. She doesn't give in when Jesus says that healing and or deliverance belongs to the children of God. Or in this case, belongs to the children of Israel. He said it's not, re- not meat or appropriate to take the children's bread. Healing is the children's bread. It's talking about provision. It's referring to provision, that which God provides to those that are his people. He said it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. That doesn't stop her either. She turns it around and says, that's true, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She is determined to possess what she needs. And Jesus calls that great faith. He doesn't rebuke her. He says, woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. Now, recognize what that means. Her faith overcame God's timetable. Her faith accelerated the possession of the Gentiles, at least the possession of the Gentiles that she was qualified for it changed everything about God's plan now before you get to thinking too crazy about that remember that God's plan was to help people that came to him Jesus was anointed with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him according to Acts 10 38 but Jesus didn't have his days mapped out He didn't wake up every morning knowing that this was his itinerary. Here's the direction he's been given from God. In many cases, Jesus journeys or his ministry was dictated by the people that came to him for help. You may remember the story in Mark chapter 5 about Jairus' daughter. Jairus comes to Jesus and says, my daughter's at home at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her and she'll live and not die. So Jesus goes with him to his house. Well, on the way there, the woman with issue of blood comes up behind him and touches his garment, and it tells us about her experience of faith. She heard of Jesus, 
and began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Well, she does touch his clothes, and Jesus feels power go out of him, and he feels power go into her. She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague, so Jesus stops. And he turns around and looks to find the person that tapped into the power that was on him. Now, everybody in the crowd is trying to touch him. And that's the dilemma the apostles, or the disciples, I should say, had when Jesus asked, who touched me? The disciples' answer was, thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, who touched me? Everybody's touching you. But only one person got anything because only one person touched him in faith. It wasn't the physical experience. It wasn't the physical touch of Jesus that transmitted anything except to this one woman. And Jesus identifies that it was her faith that made her whole. So Jesus didn't have his days mapped out by any means. He's always on the go, always ready to help people that reach out to him for help. And this woman in in Matthew chapter 15 does exactly that. She determines that she's not going to be denied. And that's what great faith does. Great faith refuses to have less than what God wants for his people. It refuses to have less than what Jesus paid for with his death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you have believed. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Turn with me over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start reading. I'm going to pull some, uh, this out of context a little bit. He's, Paul's talking by the Holy Ghost about the way that we use our bodies and what we allow our bodies to do. I want you to notice in verse 19. He says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Notice verse 20. For you are bought with a price. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, reading these scriptures, if these were the only scriptures we had, what could we conclude about the price that Jesus paid, the shedding of Jesus' blood, Concerning the spirit, that part of man that's made a new creature at the new birth when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. What would be the difference between the body and the spirit if these are the only scriptures that we have to go on? Paul makes no distinction whatsoever. He says it's the same price that Jesus paid for your body that he paid for your spirit. Well, if he paid the same price, shouldn't it bring the same results? Does Jesus' blood count more for our spirit man than it does for our bodies? If that's true, then he's told us to do something that we're not able to do. And that makes him a sinner. It would make him unjust. He said glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Because both of them are God's. Both of them were bought with a price. Now, folks, we know this is true. If we compare this to other scriptures, we know it's true. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. That's sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's another sin. I think the reason that sins and iniquities are both identified separately in this verse of Scripture is because it's talking about Jesus paying the price for the original sin, Adam's original sin in the Garden of Eden that 
plunged man into spiritual death. All of mankind was plunged into spiritual death. Jesus paid that price. But then he also had to pay the price for us individually, our individual sins. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is also translated prosperity in other places. It's talking about well-being in every area. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It means well-being in every area. But there is no way by anybody's definition that poverty would be accepted as a part of God's plan for peace or the payment Jesus paid, the price Jesus paid was paid for poverty as well. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I think it's verse 9, it says God made Jesus poor. Jesus was made poor at the point of his crucifixion that we through his poverty, he took it upon himself just like he took sin and sickness upon himself, that through his poverty we might be made rich. So prosperity, success, provision, financial provision, as well as well-being in every area, was bought and paid for by Jesus too. So Isaiah 53, 5, let me finish the scripture. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now, what in that verse is more important than something else? Are iniquities more important than transgressions? He paid the price for both. So we couldn't identify one as more important than the other, could we? The Bible says the chastisement or the punishment of our peace was upon him. So which is more important? The price that he paid for our sins or the price that he paid for our financial well-being and provision? Isaiah makes no distinction whatsoever as he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us. Well, then the last one in the list, with his stripes we are healed. What's more important? The price that Jesus paid for our sins or the price that Jesus paid for poverty, or the price that Jesus paid for sickness. It was the same price all the way around. It was the shed blood of Jesus that covered every area. So here in, second, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we just saw, let's read it again. He said, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? How does the Holy Ghost, uh, uh, how, let me say it this way. How do our bodies become the temple of the Holy Ghost? And when does that take place? Well, the Old Testament prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel tell us that God's plan, before it was completed by Jesus, God's plan was that the Savior, the Messiah, the price that he paid, would bring us into a place where we could be united with God as a part of his family, not servants like Israel was, but a part of his family. And that is what we now know through the New Testament teaching is the new birth experience that he's talking about. Well, what happens at the new birth? Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation, a new species of being, one translation says. Old things passed away and behold, all things become new. Well, the only thing that becomes new is the thing, are the things in spirit. So God said through Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel 36, I believe it is. He said God takes away the old dead, spiritually dead spirit. The spirit that was separated and estranged from God because of the original sin. He takes out that old spirit and puts a new spirit in us. And then he puts his spirit, the Holy Spirit, on the inside of us. So the Holy Spirit indwells your spirit. And your body is the house of your spirit. 
So that's what he's talking about, about the, our bodies being the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's the temple of our own spirit, and the Holy Ghost dwells and resides in us, the real us, our spirits. So he's saying something that should be common knowledge to everybody. Unfortunately, it's not. But he said, what? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who lives in you? Don't you know that because of that, you are not your own? Now, there's a new concept. Therefore, or because of this, it says, for you are bought with a price. Here's why you're not your own. For you are bought with a price. What price? The precious blood of Jesus. You are bought with a price. Therefore, because your body and your spirit was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit because both of them are God's. Both of them belong to God. Folks, this may be a little too heady for some people to wrap their, idea, wrap their mind around. But there, there's something that you need to understand. If the body wasn't paid for, if our physical bodies were not paid for, were not affected, were not included in the price that Jesus paid when he went to the cross and shed his blood, when he paid the price for mankind in the lowest part of hell in the three days between the cross and the resurrection. And even when he was raised from the dead to enforce the, his will to be done for us. If the body was not paid for in that, how could there be a resurrection? If the price of Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus that paid the price for eternal life, if that did not include the body, then how could he raise our bodies up in the last day and change them? Why doesn't the Bible say that God has new bodies, nothing to do with these? He has new bodies that he's going to give us when we get to heaven. Now, if the Bible said that's the way it worked, then we would have to question whether or not healing was really part of the, the work that Jesus paid for. If it was really part of the price that Jesus paid. But that's not what the Bible says happens. It says these bodies are quickened. It says these bodies are made new. It says these bodies become redeemed bodies. Well, if they're redeemed bodies, then the body has to be included in the redemptive plan of God, which Jesus finished right now. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Redeemed bodies are our bodies touched by heaven. When the end of this age comes, Jesus could not legally or rightly or justly give us redeemed bodies now because Satan still has authority on the earth. Satan is still the God of this world. Doesn't mean he's the God of the planet. Doesn't mean he's the God of the world system. It means he's the God of this period of time. But that time's running out. And when that time runs out, when the church age finishes, then Jesus comes back for us and we receive redeemed bodies from him because then the earth is, becomes or start, enters into a different age. And it's not the age where Satan has the authority that he does now. It's the age, meaning the tribulation period, where God shows who he is clearly and plainly clearly and plainly to the devil and everybody else. So if, the, if there was no healing provided for mankind, 
If there was no redemptive work in the body, then we could not receive redeemed bodies when Jesus returns. And that fits exactly with what the Bible said Jesus paid for. Sin, poverty, and sickness. It fits exactly with how the price of Jesus' precious blood was paid to bring our bodies and our spirits into God's possession. Now, he's made us stewards of our own bodies, and that's why we have to present our bodies as living sacrifices because we're responsible for the body. You're a caretaker in this body now. And you decide, you determine what it does and what it doesn't do. So he says, because this is true, we are supposed to glorify God in our bodies and in our spirits. Now, how do we most glorify God? I know there's this, this doctrine, this syrupy, sweet, sickening doctrine that many in the church hold to. That God brings sickness into our lives to teach us something. Well, that would be well and good, except the Bible says that's not how it works. So we're left to determine, do we believe the Bible or do we believe church doctrine? The Bible says that the only way God chastises us, the only way he disciplines us, is through the word. It's the word of God that's profitable for instruction in righteousness. It's profitable for rebuke. That means correction. It's profitable for chastisement. That means discipline. God disciplines you through his word, not through circumstances. He doesn't bring tragedy against you. He doesn't bring sickness into your life. He doesn't bring evil, anything that could be identified as evil, because God doesn't have anything evil. So he can't use anything evil. But rather, he teaches us and disciplines us through his word. And that's the only way the Bible ever says God disciplines us. Now, things were different under the old covenant, there were differences. Then, from now, because the Bible says we have now a better covenant established upon better promises. Things certainly change, uh, operate differently now than they did under the old covenant. The old covenant was all about obedience or disobedience and the consequences thereof. But that's not how things work now. Jesus paid the price for all of man's sins. He paid the price for all of man's disobedience. So we don't suffer the same consequences, or certainly at least not as quickly, as they did under the Old Covenant. Now, without, without any doubt, if somebody persists in sin, then there are consequences that come down the road. But even at that, God's mercy holds them at bay for as long as he can. So when you look at the people in Jesus' ministry and identify who glorifies God the most... There's nobody that came to Jesus and said, this sickness that I've had for so long has been so wonderful because I've been able to glorify God in the middle of it. But you can find a ton of people that after they're healed, then they glorify God. So this notion, this idea, this devilish doctrine that the church has held on to for however long, maybe 2,000 years or close to it, or that some in the church have held on to at least. That God uses sickness and disease to humble you. To bring you to a place where you glorify God in your sickness. I've never found anybody that claimed to be in that place that didn't question, why did God let this happen to me? Those two things go you know, hand in hand, at least in my experience. 
And I can't say that my experience covers everybody in every situation, certainly. But the people that I've had come to me, and they, the reason they came to me was for healing. The ones that claim that they've been glorifying God in their sickness, they're always confused about who's doing what. They're always confused about the devil's role. They're always confused about God's role. And that's easy to understand because confusion always comes when you refuse the truth of the word. When you choose to believe what somebody else is telling you instead of what God's word says, confusion is always the result. Let's finish with Acts 10.38. I quoted it earlier, but let's look at it. This is Peter preaching in Cornelius' house. You may remember the supernatural aspects of that. He was waiting for lunch to be served. And he went up on the rooftop of the house that he was lodging in. And he fell into a trance and had a vision. He saw all the animals coming down in a sheet from heaven. And a voice spoke to him and said, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. And three times this happened, and three times Peter answered the same to the voice. He said, Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And there were all kinds of animals, the Bible tells us, that he saw in his vision, both clean and unclean. Those that were according to the law of Moses are okay to eat according to the law of Moses and those that were not. And so he refused it three times. And then after that, the Lord spoke to him, Holy Ghost spoke to him and said, three men are downstairs looking for you. Go with them doubting nothing. Now the three guys that were downstairs were from Cornelius' house that a few days prior, an angel appeared to Cornelius and told him to send to the city of Joppa to a certain house and asked for Peter. And so God worked this thing out on both ends. He's trying to reveal to Peter his plan, specifically his plan for the gospel to be, go, to be sent to the Gentiles. The reason God was showing Peter this vision and showed it to him three times about the animals that were both clean and unclean, it wasn't about animals. It wasn't about what you eat. It was about people. It was about the Gentiles the Gentile world that the Jews considered to be unclean being available to receive the gospel of Jesus too. So Peter goes with them next morning. They start off early and go to Cornelius' house some distance away. And when they come into the place, Cornelius tells Peter what happened and how the, the angel appeared to him and told him what to do, told him where to go and who to send for and all that kind of stuff. And so then Peter realizes from God working on the other side of the issue, or the other side of the coin, the angel appearing to Cornelius in his household, he realized this isn't about animals. This isn't about clean and unclean animals to eat. This is about people. So he starts telling and preaching to Cornelius in his whole house about Jesus. So we come to verse 38 as a part of Peter's sermon he says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good. Well, what's good? Some people living under the burden of false church doctrine would say that being sick is good because God's got some kind of purpose in it. But notice what Peter says. Notice what the Holy Ghost inspires Peter to tell us that refutes wrong doctrine. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good, what does God consider good, and healing. Now, folks, 
James chapter 1 verse 17 says God is always good. It says every good gift comes down from above. From the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It simply means God is good and he's only good. So if God has ever healed anybody, then healing has to be good. And it's impossible because God is no respecter of persons for healing to be good for one person, but sickness to be good for another. It's impossible. If healing is ever good, which the Bible says it is, then healing has to always be good for God to be just. So Jesus was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing. Who did he heal? All that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So notice what it's telling us. In one verse of Scripture, it refutes, totally refutes, wrong, evil, devilish church doctrine that's been held on to for hundreds of years or longer. It says everybody Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. It says, therefore, that healing is always good and sickness is always the work of the devil, the oppression of the devil. And the whole reason that God sent Jesus to do healing works, we know from 1 John chapter 5, for this purpose Jesus was manifest in the earth that he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, he healed everybody that came to him for healing. He didn't turn one person away. There's not one person that's, in, that's a part of this idea in the modern day church that God wants some of his people sick. And you'd think as prevalent as that doctrine is, in the modern day church, somebody, Jesus would have come across somebody that he could say and identify was in that condition. Folks, that condition is never the will of God. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. Everybody Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. The reason Jesus never had to stop and pray to find out if it was God's will to heal somebody that came to him to receive healing is because it's always God's will to heal. God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That word saved is the word sozo. And it literally means to rescue, to deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal. It's the same word translated healed in other places in the New Testament. And the Bible is so clear in saying that God would have everybody to receive all the benefits of salvation. All the things and the characteristics and the aspects of salvation that Jesus paid for. Every part of eternal life. Which we've seen clearly from the scripture just in looking at things for a few moments tonight. Clearly identified as forgiveness of sin. Literally the removal of sin. That's what redemption means is the removal of sin not the covering over thereof. But the price that Jesus paid was a price for sin and poverty and sickness. And that's what God anointed Jesus to bring to the earth. So Jesus, at his departure, said we'd do the same works as he did. And even greater works should we do because he went to the Father. So at the very least, that means that we should be, we the church, accepting what the scripture says and not what man says about it. We should be ministering healing to every sick person who is willing to receive, is willing to use their faith to take hold of it, take possession of it, just like Jesus did. No difference. The power of God's not any different. God never changes, so he can't be different. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so he can't be different. 
People aren't different. The same sickness and disease is attacking the world today as it attacked the world in Jesus' day. And we're supposed to do exactly the same works as he did. Thank God healing belongs to us. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for all that Jesus paid for. We ask you, Holy Spirit, Jesus said you'd guide us into all reality, all truth, all reality. Guide us into the reality of healing. Guide us into the reality of what belongs to us because we're children of God. Father, we extend our faith by speaking what we believe. And we believe your word. Your word says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. Thank you, Father, we don't have to try to get healed. Healing was already accomplished at the cross. And because it was already accomplished, we say that we are healed by his stripes. We say that sickness and disease has no place in us any more than sin has a place in us. We don't believe you want us to live in sin to learn something, Father, any more than you want us to live in, with sickness to learn something. But rather we accept the truth of your word. That the price for sickness and disease has been paid. That we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. So sickness we command you to leave our bodies. In the name of Jesus. We refuse to allow you to stay. In our flesh. In the name of Jesus. We call sickness gone. We call our bodies well. In Jesus name. Now, Lord, you said in James chapter 5 that the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And we have prayed the prayer of faith. We believe that we receive our healing now by faith according to the word of God. So we thank you, Lord, for raising us up. You said the prayer of faith shall heal the sick and the Lord shall raise them up. So we thank you for raising us up into divine health. That precious divine healing and divine health that belongs to us because Jesus paid for it. We call it done, Father, and we glorify you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you agree with that prayer? Amen. Praise the Lord. It's good to be healed. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.